So what would you like to know? Right, it's cool. We can go again. Okay. <laughs> right. Cheers for coming on again. <laughs> um, we'll start again. Tell me a bit about yourself and let's go from there. Okay, I am America's oldest living world judo champion. I was the first American to win the world championships in judo. And after that, I went and got a PhD while I had three children and my doctorate's in applied statistics. Before that, I was an engineer. And now I run a video game company where we make games that teach math and history. So if you can imagine, like if you were playing World of Warcraft, but before you could fight the dwarf, you had to compute how many health points you had. And it was two thirds what he had. But then he can strike four thirds as hard as you. So should you go take have a go at him or should you run the other direction? And if you can solve the math problem and get it right, then you keep playing and you can hopefully kill the dwarf. And if you get it wrong, then you die. And if you died when you got math problems right, you'd be a lot better at math. Yeah, that's so, true. <laughs> and our games are based on real history, Native American history and Latin American history. So one of them, it's kind of fun doing it. One of the games, these kids are in, in middle school and the teacher says, don't touch this book when I leave the room. It's very powerful. And of course, the first thing they do is they have to run this little maze that's in the game past all the desks and they get up and they touch the book. And this Mayan god drags them 1200 years in the past and they land in what's now Honduras and they have to figure out things to get their way back. So yeah, that's what I do. They pay grownups to do this for a living. Um, people on the internet call themselves a coding ninja, but they're all posers because I was a world judo champion and run a tech company. So I really am a coding ninja. <laughs> very true. Very true. Very true. Um, so sort of basically what you're, you're doing at the moment is um, making education more fun, more engaging, yes. and also kind of letting people know there's consequences for wrong answers. Yeah. And, you know, people say, oh, I don't have a math brain or I can't do math. That I just want to slap them. I mean, math is all around you. If you're estimating if you have enough gas to get to the next station, if you're trying to figure out if you have enough money that you can afford to move and buy a house or move to a bigger place. You know, anytime you're in the grocery store trying to make sure that you have enough to pay for your groceries, we use it all the time. And the reason people think they don't like math is because I don't think it's been taught to them very well. And it hasn't necessarily been taught to them in context. You know, it's the same with history. Like personally, I hated history. What was your favorite subject in school? Um, PE, to be honest. <laughs> Physical <laughs> sports. I thought you I, just said. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I didn't mind history. I wasn't great at it, but I've always been interested in sort of the past and what's gone on. Uh, maths was my worst subject ever I spent most of my time getting kicked out because I just mess around because I hated it you I should know. play our games yeah you could shoot wolves like we say you know learn history learn math kill things that's no. seven generation games <laughs> yeah what what yeah. made you um why did you start seven generation yeah. games like what was the reason behind that because it's not something you've sort of done like your whole sort of your whole life hasn't been about that well, I actually thought about it back in the 80s when I was in graduate school and I had worked at a school teaching math to kids who were severely emotionally disturbed. And a lot of the students had real problems. You know, they had parents who'd try, you know, put cigarettes out on them when they were small children and just really, really bad problems. And 
if you grew up in a situation like that, you would probably have a lot of rage and anger toward the world and act on it. And so a lot of these kids, they had real problems getting along in society, but they were also very behind academically. And you try and get them to do anything and they weren't going to do it because nobody's going to tell them what to do because they hated everybody. So I thought, well, hey, I'm good with computers because I, you know, had been an engineer and I thought maybe I could make games that kids could learn from. And then while they're doing that and they're getting ahead, you know, caught up academically, those other people, the social worker types and that could help them with their other problems. So I started doing that. But if you think about what was available in the 80s, you know, that's the dates of dot, you know, <laughs> pixel printers, dot matrix printers and all that. So I did a little bit with it and then uh, graduate, you know, decided to switch into standardized testing research, basically, because there wasn't that much that hardware and software could do as far as games back then. And then my husband got sick and he passed away. And so I did real secure stuff. You know, I was a widow with three little kids. So I did Mm -hmm. customized software for big companies. But now the kids are grown and I don't have to worry so much about you know, covering daycare and college tuition and that. So I circled back to what I always wanted to do. So I'd been programming all along and I had started with the games back before the hardware and software were really there for all the graphics and storyline and that. And now it's sort of like the hardware is caught up with the ideas I had all along. And there's just as many kids that struggle with math. So there's still a really big need. How did you go about um, sort of learning to do program? Because, I mean, I'm an absolute novice with it, like all the coding and is it like typing numbers and stuff like that? How did you sort of go? Because it's so hard to do, if you know, if that makes sense for it, people. It's like anything, though, whether you're talking about judo or running track or writing a novel. It's the more you do it, the better you get at it. So I, when I was in graduate school, I was learning about statistics and one of my professors, we actually had to read these articles and it's hard to believe now, but we actually had to read these articles where people were arguing that, that Hispanic and, and black people were less intelligent genetically than white people. And I really didn't think that was true at all. And I'm in the back of the room saying, ah, excuse me, hello. And the professor says, well, Anne Maria, you just obviously don't understand statistics. So I thought, well, that's what I'm going to specialize in. And the more I learned, the easier it got. And it's true. Like I said, I teach judo to kids. And when they first come in, like we started the semester and have a new group of kids and they're struggling, you know, they're not as in good shape as the kids who've been there a while and all the techniques are new. And I tell them, you, when you were learning to walk, you fell down on your butt and you cried and you got up and you eventually got good at it. It's like, I think it was somebody I heard the other day was, he might have been, even been a guest on our podcast that said, you know, everybody falls down when they're learning to walk, but no little kid sits on their butt and says, you know, this walking thing isn't for me. I don't have a walking brain. I'll just give up on it. So whether it's coding or any sport or any academics, it's all the same. You just bang away at it and you will get better. So I started programming when I was in high school and then I did some in college. I did some working as an engineer, and I've just done some over the years. And just like with arm bars, you know, the more you do it, the better you get. That's <laughs> uh, very well, very true. It's obviously just starting in the first place, and then sort of, you know, keeping keep going, keep moving, 
rather than sitting there and just thinking, throwing your hands up, I'm done because I failed or I just can't quite get it, if that makes sense. And everybody fails at first. I'm going to South Dakota in about a week to talk to the South Dakota Indian Education Summit. And one of the points that I try to make when I give these talks on youth becoming producers, not just consumers of technology, is that we compare our fit first draft with other people's finished products. So you see the program that somebody did and it does all these amazing things and you click on the monkey and you know, you t- click on the banana in the game and the monkey does some flips and there's a monkey sound and then it goes back into the tree and the banana disappears and on the list it shows that now you have one fewer thing to find. You don't have to find the banana. And your first program, you try doing something like that and your program doesn't work because you misspelled something and you didn't realize that the document has to be fully loaded or whatever. So we look at our own first drafts and your own first draft is going to be crap. Everybody's first draft of everything is crap. But you don't see that. You see that, oh, these programs here that people wrote with three, you know, three years of 100 people working on it, they're amazing and mine isn't good. So I must not, you know, I must not have that computer brain. And that's not it. It's just you, like you said, you got to keep banging away at it. Getting a team of like people to support you as well is probably good to try and learn from. Or you know, how how would you even go about learning? Like, do you, did you sort of connect with other people to maybe learn little bits here and there in in the sense of coding for yourself to get better, or was it simply trial and error on your own? Well, I took some classes in school. I took, I had some classes that my company paid for when I was working. And, well, I'm still working, but <laughs> when I was early in my career. And just read a lot of books. for. So I decided I wanted to make games. And I was going to make them using JavaScript. So I do the JavaScript part. We also have something called Unity 3D, where we use C Sharp and we have some other. So there's a group of us that work together. And I decided I want to make games. And I went to a lot of people trying to get investors and said, look, I've you know written software for years. I have a PhD. I was teacher. And I got a lot of people saying, well, you know, you're too old. And we all know who does successful software companies. And I've had people say this straight to my face. You know, it's 20-something white men in Silicon Valley. And so I said, you know what? Fuck you, people. I'm going to do it. And I went and I did a Kickstarter. I wrote some grants. And every day I would get up and I would spend an hour or two either reading books on on JavaScript, game programming, Unity, uh, mobile apps, whatever. So I'd spend an hour or two reading about it every day in the morning before I got up. I would try making games and they wouldn't be very good and I'd keep working on it. And I got a little bit of funding to do the first prototype and it had lots of bugs and I will be forever grateful to the schools that helped me test it. And yeah, I just kept working on it. So I had some courses early on, but Lately, it's all been lynda.com. I really like that site. So I've taken some things from there and just reading it, trying it, doing it again. Did that motivate you more when people were like, oh, there's it's 20 white males and you can't do it? Did that yes. sort of stimulate you and think? Absolutely. And I think it's probably been good for me because maybe that's one reason I keep the company going. I mean, a lot of those companies that got funded, you know, $100 million that were by the stereotypical 20-something white male dropped out of an Ivy League school are gone belly up and we're still here. So there's a little bit of satisfaction that, I mean, not that I want other people's companies to fail, but 
I think that's one of the things that keeps me going too, because sometimes they, you know, what am I doing? I can make a ton more money if I just went back to, you know, writing databases mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have to be working so many hours. I wouldn't have to be saying to everybody, Hey, try our games. They're amazing. You know, I could just go in, collect a big paycheck and take it easier. But yeah, there's a certain amount of that wanting to prove to people who say you're too old or, you know, women don't run software companies or whatever that, yeah, you're wrong. So um, with the Seven Generation Games uh, website, is that free for people to go on and play and try or is it like a pay-per-monthly thing like all in schools? How How's that done? We have some free games. Basically, we're hoping that you'll play our free games and that they're amazing and then get our other games that aren't free. So we have some free games in the App Store. We have some free games you can play on our website. And we have some free demos you can download from our website. So if you play games, say, on Mac or Windows, you can download some free demos. If you play games on an iPad, you can go to the App Store and download some free games. And then if you really like them, you can buy our games anywhere, Amazon, at our website, on Steam, on the Microsoft Store, App Store, just about anywhere. So, yeah, we have some free games you can play. And, and you know, we don't get upset if people don't have money like there are some schools that i was visiting and the teacher was a little bit embarrassed because well we just have the free demos because you know we didn't have the 500 dollars a year to pay for all the games for the whole school and i said well that's fine you know, i'm happy that you could use the ones we're free and if you're a really low-income school you know talk to me and maybe we can find somebody who'll sponsor the license for you that's mad because it's like not that expensive 500 dollars a month for no, it's 500 a yeah, year. Yeah, sorry, 500 for a year for no, a it whole isn't. school of pupils, you know what I mean, to reach them. Obviously, I understand some schools are going to have difficulties with funding, etc. And trying to get that money, it's got to be placed elsewhere. But still, like, for what they're gaining from it isn't exactly much per pupil. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's, it's strange, you know. But obviously, if people can't afford it, they can't afford it. But... I think sometimes, you know, the children's needs need to come first and money can be taken from another pot and placed into something else that's going to help them maybe succeed and enjoy doing maths or history rather than sitting in the classroom looking at when I was being taught, looking at a whiteboard and they're just going, so this happened and open this book. And I'm thinking, God, shoot me in the face. (laughs) (laughs) You know, whereas if I had some like app and game plan, I'd be thinking, Maths is fucking sick. Like, get me back in there. Do you know what I mean? Well, and one of the things that happens too is kids may be playing the game and they can't solve a problem because in each of our games, if you get something wrong, you, you'll get a second chance unless it's multiple choice because then you're just guessing. But say the answer is 42 and you put 40. Well, maybe you just mistyped it, right? So you get a second chance. You only get half the points, but you get a second chance. But if you miss it twice in a row, you can't keep playing. And a page will come up, a screen will come up, and it'll say, pick how you want to learn. You can watch a video, you can do an activity, you can uh, read something or have it read to you, but you have to go and study whatever that is that you didn't get right. Because there's no point just like throwing problems that you keep getting wrong. Well, I've been in classrooms where I've seen a student get frustrated because they got the problem wrong. They went and they watched the video. They still didn't understand, say, how to reduce fractions. So then maybe they read something or had to write to them, they still didn't understand how to reduce fractions. So then they would call the teacher over and say, Miss Jensen, Miss Jensen, I tried this problem three times and I had to get, how do you do this? 
And so then, even though it's the same thing as the teacher explaining it to you, you're going to learn it a lot more because you're not sitting there thinking, oh, God, just shoot me. You're thinking, by God, I'm going to get this problem so I can go on to that part where you're canoeing down the rapids and spearing the fish. And so if that teacher can help me, you know, figure out this one problem, that's all I need to do. And so it's gone from the teacher trying to bang it into your head to you being frustrated and wanting them to come over here and show you how to solve this. And that makes the teacher's job that much easier as opposed to saying, damn it, sit down, do those worksheets. It's kind of like giving an incentive as well to to learn it and complete that task. So you're thinking, well, I need to know how to do it because I want to progress or I want to do that bit or I want to play that bit. So I need to know how to do it. So you're kind of learning in your own way and actually wanting to learn to uh, be able to press forward in in the game. It's mad. It's a strange way of like learning, but it's such a smart way and a good way. And I think it should be used more. I mean, in England, I haven't been at school for like 10 years now, so I don't know whether they're using things like this yet. But I think it's such a cool idea and definitely would get more people engaged in subjects. Have you not thought about doing other subjects as well, like to try and like English or whatever? So... We're actually adding that in. So the games all integrate math and history. So the reason I hated history is because it was just boring. It's like memorize a bunch of names and dates. And I was like, these people are all dead. What difference does it make? But the history teachers we work with now to to build the games, they have a whole different attitude. And one of them, Jose Gonzalez, was saying history is more than that. It's It's how people lived. And that, the stories of people's lives, that part is interesting to me. And so in our games, for example, you'll see how the Ojibwe, the Native Americans actually lived, how they speared fish and how they taught their children and what kind of houses they lived in and how they built those houses. And so that's the kind of history we teach. So that's already in all of our games. And then with our newer games we're coming out with, they're bilingual. So they're in Spanish and English. And yeah, there's a saying that what if you start a company, especially if it's a startup, say not just like Bob's Pie Shop, but if you start a company, you can almost guarantee that the company you end up with is going to be different than the one that you envisioned when you started out. Mm-hmm. And almost every game that we've done has been used in different ways than we had originally thought of. So as tech games are Latin American history, like I said, you get pulled back into Honduras, right, in the year 800. And you have to solve all these problems and figure out how to get work your way through time, you know, through time and distance and get back to where you came from. And we thought it would be used in schools for children who English is their second language. So they speak Spanish. They immigrated to the United States. They grew up in a home that spoke Spanish. Now they're in school and they have to learn English. So that's what we thought. And every page you click on, you can click on a button and switch the the language from Spanish, from, from English to Spanish. And it's used that way a lot, but the other place unexpectedly it's used is in Spanish classes. So where students are learning Spanish and we hadn't really thought of that, but it's some of the advanced Spanish classes, the teachers use it for like a reward activity. So here you're hearing the language you know, spoken, you're seeing it in print and you're playing game. So you became, um, if I might've read this wrong, but um, sort of, an education psychologist is that right yes educational psychology is what my doctorate is in. 
Yeah, and what, like, how did you go about doing that and what's that about? Obviously, I don't know much, but I'm assuming you kind of go in and assess maybe kids that need sort of, they have like maybe ADHD or something like that and you have to diagnose what that is. Is that right? Or other... That's kind of it. Um, When I went for my doctorate, I wanted to do it in statistics, statistics. And I got some very good advice that you need to do the statistics on something. And if you, you know, you could go into biostatistics where you're, and I've done some of that in my career where you're looking at, say, what's the average length of stay if somebody's hospitalized for a specific illness or what's the, you know, projected months or years they'll live with a certain diagnosis. So you can go into biostatistics, you could go into educational statistics, you go into, um, you know, public policy or whatever. And so when I went to graduate school, they said, you know, instead of going into just pure statistics in the math department, because no one really wants you to prove the central limit theorem for them as a job, perhaps you want to pick one of these areas that's more applied. And so educational psychology, you could specialize in a number of areas, say curriculum instruction and how children learn. And you're right, the area that I specialized in was basically standardized um, testing. So I could go in and, you know, test you and tell you how your IQ stacks up against the average person in America or England. That sounds fucking like hard work. How, how what are sort of the tests in place for that? Like how would you just go in and sort of be able to tell maybe someone's IQ and where they stack up and everything like that? Is it just kind of a quiz based thing or? Well, the best, the, the most reliable test for intelligence are individual ones because, you know, you could give it an intelligence test to a whole group of kids by pen and paper, but then you can't really tell if that student's paying attention or not, or if they just scribbled, you know, colored in circles randomly. So the most reliable ones would be if you sat down individually and did it with a person, because then you can tell not with a hundred percent accuracy, but more accurately if they actually were really trying you could also tell if there were other things that might have impacted the test, like maybe they are really depressed. Maybe they just broke up with their girlfriend or you know, lost their job, and so they're not really paying attention to you. So when you do an intelligence test, one of the things that you're supposed to be doing, if you're good, is paying attention to those things, making sure that the person actually is proficient in the language you're testing them in, because maybe somebody you know, speaks English fairly well conversationally, but there's still like if, I, if you tested me in Spanish, you know, my Spanish is OK to carry on a conversation, but it's not nearly as good as my English. So you'd probably come out that I wasn't all that bright. <clears throat> so once you cover, you know, all those things, you have a standard test that you would give them. And there's a number of them. And if it's a good test, <clears throat> it should have multiple areas. So like the the most common, the Wexler Intelligence Scale has performance and verbal components. And David Wexler, who died many years ago, but when he came up with it, he said, because he thought there were people intelligent in different ways, that some people are really good at using words and other people are really good at using things, but they're both intelligent. So the Wexler intelligence scale, they would give you a vocabulary test. So they'd ask you things like, what does civil mean? Um, They would also give you an information task and ask you questions like, why do we need meat inspectors? They'd um, there's there's also performance parts of it. They'll give you 
incomplete figures and ask you what's missing in this. They'll give you mazes put, to put together. So they'll give you basically puzzles. They call it figure completion. But it, or um, Anyway, so they'll give you a dozen different tasks. And the idea, too, is that you know, probably you're going to be strong in some areas and weak in other areas, but you add up the people's scores on all of those tests, and then you see how that stacks up relative to the average person out of the millions of people who've been tested with it. So do, do, they, do people have to sort of um, have, like, is there, like, applications for diagnosis for certain, say, parents or whatever that think their kids maybe have some form of issue learning difficulties is there like a process for that or is it someone a teacher in the class may notice that they're struggling and look to bring someone you can do it either way now in the u.s people usually would take their child have their child assessed through the school because then the school pays for it Hmm. so if a child is the school thinks that perhaps a child has a learning disability or they have a mental handicap, they will go through a whole process. But in the end, it it ends up having somebody, a school psychologist uh, or someone come in and administer assessment to the student. And so generally, it would go through a whole referral process. Now, at the other end, say you think your child's gifted, you can also go through the school and they would assess them to see if they come out at the other extreme is extremely gifted and qualify for special programs. However, that's often a much lower priority than children that are are mentally handicapped or have learning disabilities. And so you might have to wait months or a year or more to get to the top of the list. And so in that case, parents might go ahead and pay for it themselves. Do you think there's been like a rise in applications from peop- uh, from parents and, you know, schools having like, is there more parents more concerned at the moment? <coughs> Rather than sort of previously, because I think like maybe in the the eighties and the nineties and school times, it wasn't sort of as known as like someone maybe dyslexics or or, or etc. So is it like now there's sort of more applications where people are kind of wanting to know whether their children may have some issue? I haven't seen it go up over the last 10 or 15 years, but from like, say, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it's dramatically different. And, you know, sometimes it's kind of sad because I will meet people who are in, say, their 60s and 70s. And clearly today they would have been diagnosed as dyslexic. But when they were young, people just said, oh, you're just dumb, you know, lucky if you can get through high school and you have a strong back and a weak mind. So it's sad that I think some some of those people – achieve far less than they could have and achieve far less than they would now. Like I was on a committee evaluating federal research grants and there was a gentleman on the committee that had a headset and the grants were read to him because he wasn't blind, but for he had some problem with his brain that he just could not read the text, but he had a PhD. So basically and I've worked with a few people like that over the years that their ability to to read things is no greater than if they'd been completely blind. But just like somebody who's blind, like a good friend who's visually impaired in other areas, they're perfectly smart. I mean, (laughs) once the material's read to them, they can answer questions on it. They could give a speech on it. They can, uh, you know, design something based on it. 
but they can't read. And those kinds of people, I don't think were ever identified, you know, 50, 60 years ago. So that's been a good thing. What was your um, thesis on for your paper? Did you have to do one of them and submit it? I did. I had to do a dissertation and it was on intelligence testing in the US and Mexico. And it was kind of interesting because we had kids from Baja California Norte, which is the, the Mexican state that borders the state of California where I live. So they're not living that far apart. And the test was translated into Spanish. And it was interesting because some of the things that like the kids in Mexico did much better on the arithmetic tests where, you know, you have to do basically arithmetic in your head. And I don't know why that is, but one of my speculations is that because they were much poorer, very few of them had a calculator. And so they actually had to do that where a lot of our kids in the U.S. at the same age, they don't have to do that math in their head. You know, they've all, now they've all got a cell phone, but back then, you know, they all had calculators. And so there, there are some interesting differences. That sounds cool. (laughs) Sounds, sounds cool. Kind of complex, but cool. You know, it sounds, um, so you evaluated the numbers. How did they sort of stack up in, in the long run? Obviously the how how did it all unfold for you? What did you find well, from that? Well, some things were really interesting. I, I kind of expected this, but the factors that Wexler found using a, a, using children in the U.S. were replicated with children in Mexico. So that whole idea of you know verbal and performance intelligence that some people are smart with words and other people are smart with things that all stacked up. Um, a factor that he said played a role in how well you do on an intelligence test is freedom from distractibility. Can you actually pay attention to the question? And, you know, that's stacked up. The relationship between grades and other behavior and intelligence is not as high as people think. And so they're related and they were related in the U.S. and Mexico. But grades predict about 25% of grades are predicted by your IQ. The other 75% is other things. How hard you study? Do you have books in the home? How much your parents get on your your case about studying? How much help you have? So that was kind of what I expected. The relationship between what they call adaptive behavior, you're just a bi- ability to get along in life. You know, can you take the bus on your own? Can you make change? Um, can you dress yourself in the morning? You know, one of my nephews used to always be teasing his sister you know, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. And so can you actually dress yourself and not funny? And those kinds of things probably, and now I'm really searching my memory, but I'm thinking maybe 10 to 15% of that was explained by intelligence. And the rest is just, you know, like your grandma said, common sense and intelligence aren't that close related. So it was fun to do. So you've been, um, you're massively into your judo. Yeah. yeah, I am into it. I mean, I teach judo once a week. I, well, I taught twice this week, but on the average, I teach once a week because I'm really busy running a company. And I wrote a book on it, Winning on the Ground. And, you know, I maybe a few extra days a, month, a year, like I took the, our judo students on a road trip where we stopped in Las Vegas and worked out with the club there. We did kind of a mini camp in Salt Lake City and then went hiking in the National Forest so I do some things like that, but I'm not as crazy into it as a lot of my friends that I competed with. 
And I think it's because, you know, as soon as I finished competing, I went and got a doctorate and I have founded a series of companies. But I still try to make time because for me, it was kind of my ticket out of a bad situation. And I think for many kids, it can be. You know, there's a guy, Gary Stretch, who was the world boxing champion. In fact, he's from England. And he was ta- he talking about wanting to do a film, The Safest Place to Be, how sometimes in the gym where people are fighting is the safest place to be, depending on you know what it's like on the street or at home where you're from. When, when did you get into judo? From what age? I was 12. I was a fat little kid with really thick glasses. And my mom said, you cannot just sit in your room and eat all the time and read books. And she drove me to the local YMCA and pushed me out of the car and said, go join something. How did you know you was any good when you started? Do you know what I mean? Like, did you have a sort of a talent for it? Or Well, I kind of did. But the reason I started judo is back when I was young, that was before Title IX passed, which is the law in the U.S. that requires um, anybody that gets federal f- money to give males and females an equal opportunity for sports. And so back when I was young, they could just say, well, we don't allow girls to do this sport. And most sports just didn't allow girls. So the judo instructor where I started had a sister. And so he had allowed girls to do judo. I'm sure somebody your age is kind of crazy to think, well, we don't allow girls to do this, but that's just the way it was. And so I only had a couple of picks. And so I picked judo. And yeah, I was a short, fat little kid. So I was short, so I was hard for people to get under. And I was fat, so I was heavy for people to push over. And I had three brothers and a sister, so I was used to fighting. So, yeah, I was good at it right away. Did you, obviously, you went on to compete and then did you become, I think I read that you was like the first female world champion in judo. Is that right? I was the first American to win the world championships in judo. So, um, What was that like when you won that? It was great. You you know, it was funny. I did cartwheels the whole down the whole end of the stadium. And, you know, the Japanese players and the Eastern European players who were the the more successful in the women's divisions at the time, they're all very stoic. And I won and I bow to you and I won and I did cartwheels down the whole stadium. I mean, what are they going to do? Take my medal back? (laughs) No chance. (laughs) No, um, I mean, is it for you? Is there sort of what? sort of drove you to persist with it and keep with it was it just because you were sort of limited on what sports you could participate in or was there sort of more of a mental motivation to it well I think there are a couple things one is that like I said it was one of the few options I had when I was young and I was good at it and because I was good at it, it attracted some attention of people who had wanted the U.S. to win a gold medal. And the U.S. had never won a gold medal, men or women, in judo. And so because of that, they paid my way to some tournaments. They paid for some of my training. And so it was kind of a, a virtuous circle, you know, the opposite of a vicious circle. Like the better I got, the more people paid attention to me and gave me opportunities. And, you know, then the more I used those opportunities and got better, the more there were. And I was a bad kid. You know, I was fighting in school and getting in trouble and getting sent to the principal's office and getting sent to juvenile hall. And then here I was fighting in judo and knocking people down. And they're like, hey, here's a gold medal. And would you like to go to Paris? <laughs> so I thought, well, this is a better deal. So you obviously transitioned from um, 
you know, taking part yourself, did you coached Rhonda for her? I'm going to get this all confused. She got a gold in the juniors and then a bronze at the 2008 Olympics. Is that right? Yes. What was that like coaching her, like coaching your daughter? It, well, it's very nerve wracking and difficult. I mean, I didn't ever have any desire to coach at that level because I know what it takes. And there's a great saying that coaching is something you have to be smart enough to do it and dumb enough to believe it's important. And really, I think that the things that I do now working with kids can make a difference in the lives of millions of children. But nothing is more important than your own kids. So when Rhonda decided that she wanted to do judo, and she wanted to make a run at the junior worlds and the Olympics, she was the youngest when she was 17 when she was in the 2004 olympics she was the youngest person in the world to qualify for the olympics in judo and i told her i said you know me kiddo i will tell everybody in the world to go fuck themselves if you don't want to do this and she said no mom this is really what i want to do and so i did the best i could by her but it's it's difficult coaching your own child and you know she said it before too sometimes you know, you're hurting, you want mom to say, oh, you poor baby, take a rest. And, you know, here's some chicken soup as opposed to get your ass up and run 10 more laps. But your coach needs to tell you to get your ass up and run 10 more laps. Mm -hmm. So I think that part's difficult. But, you know, we talk about it. And she said, I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be where I am without where I was. Hats off to you for doing that, I think, because that must be hard to sort of switch from mental states from like mother to coach and then back to mother you know and sometimes and having sort of that lifestyle at home and then going to the gym and being coach again etc well and olympic sports are a far more corrupt entity than i think they try to portray themselves and once ron was maybe i don't know 18 or 19 i forget and my youngest daughter is 11 years younger than ronda so she was you know i don't know eight or nine and she's she did judo for a long time and now she plays soccer we guys call football but anyway she's eight or nine years old and my husband looks at her and he looks at me and he says i hope she's not very good at judo and i knew exactly what he meant because when kids are very good at a sport very young there's a lot of negative influence around them. There's a lot of people that say, oh, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, you're an Olympian. You can go out drinking. And, you know, Rhonda, I told her, hell no, you can't go out drinking. You're 17 years old. And she, you know, would want to go to these parties with the other people in their 20s. It's like, you know, you're 16. You have no business going to these parties. No, absolutely not. And there's just a lot of people who don't have these kids' best interests at heart. And if you look at whether it's the Olympics or you look at our, a lot of our professional athletes that end up on drugs and in accidents and all these things, it's not that they're all bad kids. No. It's that they often have people around them that don't have their best interests at heart. Strange, strange like times because, you know, um, I don't know if you follow the UFC much, obviously, uh, currently at the moment, but like John Jones with his steroid sort of thing that's going on where he's 
been tested positive for his B samples, tested positive for steroids. And I'm just like, fuck me, man. Like, who's influencing you, bro? Like, you've got all this potential. You do a hit and run or whatever you've done. And fucking, I'm just like, what's going on? What are these negative influences for you? I mean, people talk trash about Rhonda, and it really irritates me. In fact, her sister, I'll see if I can find a, a link to it. Her sister, Maria, wrote a blog one time because she was so mad. Um, and she said, you know, John Jones, after he had that hit and run, after he had that failed drug test, and then he won that last fight before it turned out that the, the drug samples were failed. And, you know, people are like, oh, what a great champion. What a comeback. She goes, people tear into Rhonda. What has Rhonda done? You know, she gives a lot of money to charity. She helps out with youth programs. She's never been arrested. She's never failed a drug test. She's been taking them since she was, you know, 13 or 14 and made her first, you know, international youth team. She, you know, pays her taxes, is kind to people. The worst thing, you know, she says fuck and she flips somebody off and didn't shake their hand. And that's what you have bad to say about Rhonda. And I tell people, if your kid is in international sports from the time they're 15 and the worst thing you can say is they swear, you know, they've never been in rehab. They've never been arrested. They've, you know, never been in trouble. You, you go, if that's the worst thing you could say is my kid swears, you, you should go to mass and get down on your knees and light candles and thank God that your kid's that good. Yeah, very true. Very true. Hats off to the mother. <laughs> I say, you know, done a, done a good job and keeping them in track, keeping her on track, should I say. Did you, did you ever have like, um, you know, when she was like saying, oh, I want to go to this party. Was there ever any sort of arguments there? Was she just like, fuck you, mom. I want to go out. I've had enough of this. <laughs> oh, tons of them. Oh, you don't appreciate me. And uh, But, you know, I tried to explain to her. Now she understands. Of course, she's an adult. But one of the things I told her, like she had a friend that her brother, the friend's brother, I think he got arrested for like dealing crack cocaine or something. And her friend was not involved at all. Her friend's a good kid. Right. And I said, you can't go to her house anymore. And she said, I said, she can come to your house, but you can't go to her house. She says, you're so mean. It's not her fault. Her brother sells drugs. I said, all, everything you say is true. But if the police come in and you get arrested and there's crack there, your friends will get picked up by their parents at juvenile hall and you will get kicked off the Olympic team. You can't go to her house anymore. So, you know, there were things that she just thought I was the meanest person in the entire world. And now she has a sister who's 19 and lots of times they'll be talking and Julie will be cl complaining about something or when she was in high school, you know, the same age Rhonda was when she was in the Olympic team in high school and, oh, mom won't let me do this or mom won't let me do that. And Rhonda would say, mom's right. You listen to mom. Mom is right. <laughs> I said, I wish I could go back in time with this recording and play it to you when you were 16. <laughs> mom knows best. Uh, strange, strange times. I mean, um, with with all of that and having to deal with that on from from yourself you know because ultimately you did know best and Rhonda turned out to be the superstar she has been still is you know and fucking fair play to you <laughs> so i can say on that i mean it's it's uh, lucky well i just i can't explain it i mean fair play to you to be able to to raise you know good kids and keep business going as you have done and judo where'd you find the time like what motivates you you know sometimes when i get introduced to the conference they'll be like a doctor demars has four children and one of them is a 
you know, CEO of this company. And, uh, you know, Maria just got named um, the Emerging Star of the Year for the National um, Association of Latina Businesswomen. She was named the um, Young Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, you know. And then Jennifer's got a master's degree. She's got tenure at um, Los Angeles Unified. She graduated from the University of Southern California. You know, Julia's playing soccer in college. She's there on an academic scholarship and on the soccer team. And, you know, and then there's Rhonda. And, and then on top of that, I wrote a book and I published scientific articles and I founded three companies. And, you know, and so when they say all that stuff, it's like, wow, that's really a lot of work. But, but in the process, it's just Tuesday. You know, today I got up and I called a bunch of schools and I scheduled a meeting in North Dakota where I'm going to train teachers. And then I'm going to come into the office and uh, work on making more games. And, you know, then I'll come home and, you know, take one of my daughters to the airport. And it's just... It sounds like a lot when you pile it all up, but in the process, it's just, well, I'm going to do this this hour and this the next hour and just all adds up. Your mental mindset must be quite strict. Do you have like a sort of routine, day rituals, anything like that, that sort of you wake up, have a coffee or whatever, do some yoga or something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were you good until the yoga part. <laughs> No, I usually, to be honest, I usually wake up and have coffee and check Twitter to see if there's interesting articles because I'm a slow riser. I tell you, boardings are not us. For a long time, I would get up and, and, like I said, read a book on JavaScript every for an hour before I got out of bed. But lately, I'm a slacker and I'm, I'm reading Twitter and then I answer all my emails usually while I'm still in bed <laughs> and get up about 11. So I spent about an hour read, you know, answering all the emails for all the people that sent me email in the morning that for some reason were up earlier. I've read something on the internet um, that you didn't like Rhonda's coach. What happened uh, there? What went on there? You should look him up and see if you can find any actual accomplishments he ever had. Did he just stumble across a golden gem, basically? Yes. Well, simple answer. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think that as well with certain... Uh, there's a lot of that in sports where a coach just kind of gets this naturally gifted star and everyone kind of is like oh the coach must be so great blah 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 and it's like what have they really achieved right kind of riding off the success of the person they've got in their camp yeah how did Rhonda feel about sort of your opinion of her coach um i don't know she just she just got married so we're all like we're all gonna be nice (laughs) And it was actually a really nice wedding, you know, like when you have a bunch of people together and, you know, we'd never like most of his family, we'd never met a bunch of people together, many of them strangers and a lot of alcohol. You never know how it's going to turn out. But fortunately, nobody got really drugged. Nobody said anything really out of line. And, you know, I've heard some horror stories from weddings. So, so yeah, we're kind of on the Everybody's going to be nice. Was that because obviously where I live in England, I don't, um, you know, get American news much. And that was the wedding quite secretive in the sense of. Yes. How it happened, because I, I think it just popped up on because I follow her. I follow her on Instagram and I was just like, oh, where, where did this come out of? Like, she's married now. Like, what's going on there? Yeah. Well, they had been planning on getting married and they wanted a really small wedding and they basically just invited the families and they didn't have like I know. He invited some other people. Rhonda pretty much invited her immediate family, and that was it. And there were two people. She invited her sisters, 
parents, grandparents, her best friends that she'd known since she was a teenager, and um, two family friends that have known the family since she was born. So, yeah, I don't think there's anybody that she invited she'd known less than, like, 15 years. So it was a really small – so she invited a very small number of people, and he invited um, a little bit bigger number of people, but um, – yeah, it was really small, and, and they had originally been planning on having it earlier than they did, but then it was just difficult to get everything organized, and everybody had to fly to Hawaii, and so it was nice. Though so it's interesting because his family, they're Hawaiian, right? And so they're very expressive, huggy, kissy, oh, auntie, and I'm like <laughs> – I just met you. I mean, you know, it's just, they're very nice. It's just different. And if you see different cultures and some people are like, imagine like people from Japan who are very not huggy, kissy and meeting up with people from Mexico kind of, or so it was like that. I mean, it was like, we didn't like them or they didn't like us. We we're like, eh. it's just like, she's, um, you've got people coming towards you with their sort of arms wide open, like, hey, and you're like, armbar, take them down, armbar. Why are you yeah. touching me? What's going on? I don't yeah. know you. Like I said, it, it's not that they weren't very nice, but it's like, oh, we're not really like that. <laughs> so um, do you think you'll ever retire from judo yourself, like teaching it? Do you think you'll ever just put the sport behind you, no more teaching, no more teaching? Um, probably, because... You know, you get older and you can't do all the same things that you can. And also, like I said, the business takes up a lot of my time. And I've learned a lot. Like Native American, like the, a lot of the Native American tribes who've been here forever have a, a good bit of wisdom. And they tend not to traditionally have, you know, old people run things forever, which I think can be, I mean, look at our country. Oh my God. You know, we got all these people that are in their seventies running stuff. They need to just go home and let some people with new ideas come in. And I think sometimes that's good that you go home and let the young people take over. I'm totally on board with that. Do you think you'll struggle to accept it when it happens or are you kind of mentally prepared to just when it, when it comes, you know, to relax and be like, well, I've done my part. I've been a lot smarter easing out of judo than I've managed to do easing out of work. <laughs> you know, I went from doing, you know, three practices a day to, you know, kind of working out recreationally to, you know, a couple of times a week. And, you know, when Rhonda came up, obviously I took her to practice seven days a week, but I've been cutting back on it more and more. And I think, Many people stick, whether it's judo or their career, teaching, whatever it is, many people stick with things longer than they should because they don't have a plan B, they don't have anything else to do. So then you get people who are just going through the motions. And I never want to be that person. But I, I have to get going because I've had people call me three times and message yeah. me once on this call because yeah, it's actually no, cool. a work day for me. So yeah. No, uh, sorry, 50 minutes massively appreciate your time um if you can ping me over your links to like your websites podcasts books whatever blog okay um i'll put it all in the description so people can check it out um i'll message you on skype anyways when the video is uploaded but yeah get those links sent over to me okay will do is it okay sorry i gotta to... run that's no, right is it okay to add you as a friend on facebook so i can tag you in this video sure okay? yeah sure, perfect good. all right then i'll let you go thank you for your time um, oh, no and i'll problem. speak to you soon all right
Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.